C.S. Lewis, the celebrated English writer of a previous generation, expressed profound grief at the death of his wife in a piece he entitled A Grief Observed. And there Lewis captures the experience of most of us when we lose in death those who are closest to us. We recognize that death itself causes a dramatic rupture in this process of life. Death is stark. It is inevitable and it is a subject around which we tiptoe and are quite often in a hurry to move on. It is not a discourse that we enjoy having with others for any length of time. But when it comes to the death of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, this is an altogether different matter. Because this is a subject that the scriptures and believers enjoy thinking about and speaking about. It is a subject which fills us with awe and fascination. The thought that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins. The New Testament reveals that the subject of the death of Christ fascinated the biblical writers. We have not the time or the space to enlarge upon the frequency with which they refer to the death of Christ, either in terms of actual word or in concept. But you take the Apostle Peter who, for instance, in 1 Peter 3.18 could say, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Or that very well-known statement of the Apostle Paul, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul, of all of the writers of the Scriptures, speak much about the death of Christ. And there has been many studies, numerous studies over the centuries on Paul's writings and his teachings regarding the death of Christ. We have now well-known categories through which to view the death of Christ. Because as you read the Pauline corpus and the Pauline literature, you will see that he interprets the death of Christ in redemptive terms. Christ's death being redemption, that which buys us back 
from sin and frees us from divine judgment. He thinks of the death of Christ in, in terms of propitiation, whereby the death of Christ deflects or turns away the wrath of God. And he speaks of it in endearing terms as reconciliation, whereby we are brought into a new friendship with God. These, then, are word pictures through which he conveys the significance of Christ's death. But it is, bears reflecting that these do not comprehend or totally describe Paul's understanding of the significance of Christ's death. And I want to then discuss his view of Christ's death, his understanding of Christ's death from a different perspective from those that we have traditionally considered regarding his redemption, propitiation, reconciliation, and justification. In the passage that we read in Romans chapter 5, it becomes evident, particularly in verse 8, that Paul views Christ's death as the ultimate expression of God's sacrificial love for his people. Now this is a well-known point, one that is made by John in John chapter 3 verse 16. But Paul himself sees the death of Christ as the ultimate expression of God's sacrificial love. He says as much in verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He points out the death of Christ in Romans 3.25 to 26 as that which reflects the judgment of God or the justice of God. That the death of Christ was also a demonstration of God's justice when he tells us that God set forth Christ as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time that his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Christ's death on the cross signaled God's justice against human sin. But the cross rep represents, according to Paul, more than God, a demonstration of God's justice. It is a demonstration of his love. It is, it is the ultimate demonstration of his love. And that was what Paul gets at when he says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. You notice that in the first part of the book of Romans, in chapters 1 to chapter 3, Paul is engaged in setting out the plight of humanity. That it is not only the Gentiles, but the Jews themselves who have fallen into sin and have indeed displeased God. Paul would indict the entire creation, Jews and Gentiles, as sinners in the sight of God. But beginning in chapter 3, 21, the Apostle Paul begins to show that the 
plight of human being being that of sin, that the solution is that of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ by his blood has brought us justification. In chapter 5, Paul is dealing with the benefits of this justifying work of God. And he lists as one of the fruits of justification, peace with God. Therefore, having been justified, having been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God, objective peace with God. We have been reconciled with God. He says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have access into grace. So not only do we, because of his justifying work, or because of his, his work on the cross, we have justification, but we have peace with God. And he says we have been brought into this grace. We have access to this grace. He says not only that, but we glory in tribulation. Those who have been justified and have peace with God and are in the state of grace. These are those who glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation works perseverance. And perseverance produces character and character hope. And Paul says, this that we have, this hope that we have, those of us who are justified, is not a vain hope. And the way we know it is not a vain hope, it is because the love of God, that is God's love for us, has been poured out in our hearts. The Spirit of God has communicated to us this amazing love of God for us. And because we know of God's love given us to us by the Spirit, we have hope and our hope is not in vain. In verses 6 to 11, Paul talks of the extraordinary nature of the love of God. And he tells the Romans, But when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. He died for those who violated the commandment of God, but the the ungodly were those who were particularly irreverent towards God. If, if Eusebia, godliness, refers to reverence towards God, then ungodliness refers to irreverence towards God. Those who were irreverent to the deity, to God himself. At the right time, when we were without moral and spiritual strength that is to please God we are reminded that Christ died for the ungodly Paul is at pains in verse 7 to reflect upon the unusual nature of Christ's death the rarity of his death he says first of all that dying for a good person is something that people scarcely do. And so, dying for a bad person, <laughs> it's unheard of. That's the implication. If you go back, he says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. He's saying, it is rare, though not impossible, for someone to die for a good person. That is a person who is morally upstanding. And then he contrasts this. 
human beings find it extremely difficult to die for somebody else, even if they are quote-unquote deserving. Good. But look at what God has done. Here we come to this theologically laden verse, pregnant with meaning and significance. But God, but God. I, I, I think that whenever you come to this expression in the scriptures, but God, it, it requires that you pause a moment. It's always significant when you have but God. Sometimes it's scary. This guy says, you know, I have labored all these years. I have these wonderful barns filled with good things. I'm going to store them up. I'm going to go on a permanent vacation to Florida. I'm going to have a great, great time of fun. And then you have this, but God. But God said, thou fool. There is a seriousness to that expression. But in places like this, and in Ephesians 2, but God, it shows you something of the amazing, radical nature of the grace of God. Whereas men find it extremely difficult to die for good people. God did not consider it difficult to give his son to die for sinners. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see the extraordinary nature of the love of Christ. This love refers to his infinite affection and commitment to his children. Paul declares that God demonstrates his own love. And the, the verb demonstrate is present tense and, and shows that this demonstration of God's love is an ongoing demonstration. He describes the love of God as personal for, he says, for God demonstrates his own love. This is God's personal love. We may receive acts of kindness and indeed expressions of love from others because of some indirect connection or relationship. You may need your car fixed and somebody recommends you to a garage in Etobicoke or in Scarborough and you go to the owner of the garage and you say to the mechanic, you know, I have been recommended by so and so. And he's a good friend of that person and so he takes your car and puts your head of the line and he services your car, fixes it and doesn't even charge you. But he can do all of that for you without even caring a hoot about you. The reason he does it is because you are resting upon the credentials of a relationship that he already has in existence with somebody else. But with God, his love is not tangential or incidental. It is the love of God that comes directly from the heart of God for us. But God demonstrated his, or demonstrates his own love towards us. It is a love born by divine initiative. It is a kindness and a compassion and a grace that arises from the infinite perfection of his nature and it is given to a specific object to us. This love is a personal love. 
It is an eternal love if you read in the rest of Romans and particularly in chapter 8 and verse 35 to 39. Where Paul states, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not only is this love a personal love coming from the heart of God himself. It is an eternal love, an inseparable love that nothing in all of creation can ever be able to separate us from him. But the emphasis of this text is that this love is a sacrificial love. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How does God demonstrate his love? He demonstrates his love by giving his son to die for us. And thus his love is a sacrificial love. By invoking the language of dying, Paul alludes to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Where an animal was given over to death on behalf of the sinner. And that animal was given over on behalf of sins committed, sins of inadvertence, meaning that sins that were not deliberately planned. But God demonstrates this sacrificial love in giving Christ for us, that is, for a sacrifice and an offering for us who were sinners, who were guilty, who were who were guilty and indeed deserving the wrath of God. This is a sacrificial love of God. And it is indeed the death of Christ, that which declares God's love. It is that which proclaims in the highest terms, in the most moving of terms that God's love for us is deep and profound because he loved us and gave Christ for us but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were sinners or still sinners Christ died for us died to take in account our sin to deal with our sin problem to remove our sins and you notice that we see in the verses that follow the result of this death. In verse 9 he says much more than having now been justified by his blood. He's still referring to the death of Christ. That Christ was given for our sins. And the result of Christ's death for our sins is that he has reconciled us by his blood. And so one of the fruits of his death, of the death of Christ and the sacrificial love of God is that we have been justified 
much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. In verse 10, another fruit of the death of Christ. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So the death of the son of God led to our justification and led to our reconciliation. But what I want to press home to you is that the reason that Christ died, it is because of God's deep, abiding, infinite, and sacrificial love. It is love that moved God to give his life or to give his son to die for our sins. The death of Christ then is that which heralds the love of God for his people. But as you read Romans, it makes clear to us that the death of Christ not only demonstrates the depth and the height of God's love, but the death of Christ is secondly, not only the demonstration of, ultimate demonstration of God's love, but the death of Christ is also the ground of Christian assurance and consolation. The death of Christ is a demonstration of God's ultimate love for us, but it is also the ground of Christian assurance. This becomes obvious in chapter 8 of Romans. Romans chapter 8, as you know, is perhaps the most glorious chapter in the entire New Testament, if not the Bible itself. And Paul begins with this astonishing claim that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. He speaks of those who have been set free by the Spirit. He talks about those in whom the requirements of the law has been fulfilled, those who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In fact, Paul, very early in Romans 8, talks about the work of the Holy Spirit on behalf of the believer. He goes on to point out that there are two kinds of people, those who live according to the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit. He talks about life then in the Spirit. And life in the spirit, he will tell us, leads to privileges. One of the privileges, those of us who have and live in the spirit, one of the privileges that we have is adoption. We have been given the spirit of adoption. But Paul will go on to say that even though we, we know and enjoy life in the spirit, this does not immunize us from suffering. For we live in the in-between times. We are caught up in the overlap of the ages. And we are groaning with creation. Creation which is hankering for liberation from the effects of sin. But he tells us that even though we are groaning with creation, we are not left as orphans because the Spirit, the same theme of the Spirit is pursued later on in this chapter. The Spirit is, is the one who helps us in our weakness by interceding on our behalf with groanings that we cannot understand. The good news is that the Spirit intercedes and He intercedes on our behalf. And the Lord is the one who knows the mind of the Spirit. Very interesting statement that Paul makes. The Lord knows the mind of the Spirit. And that's a clear statement to the personality 
of the Holy Spirit. God knows the mind, the thinking of the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit on behalf of his people. In verse 27, now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So Paul tells us that even though we are suffering, and even though we are groaning, the Spirit of God intercedes, and God understands what the Spirit requires for us. In verses 31 to 39, in fact before that, the Apostle Paul encourages the believer by reminding them that not only does the Spirit of God intercede on their behalf, but that God works all things to the good of his elect. And again, this marvelous verse, and we know that all things work together for good. All things, not some things, but all things. Things that we cannot understand, all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. We may not understand the workings of God. We may not understand the mind of God in a particular situation. But God is at work. And ultimately everything that he permits and allows in our lives will turn for our good. Even suffering. He goes on to tell us that those who love God and for whom all things work for good are those whom God has foreknown, those whom he predestined, those whom he called, those whom he justified, and those whom he glorified. He's encouraging them. As you live in the spirit and you encounter hardship, you have on one hand the spirit of God who is bringing your knees to the Father, and on the other hand, you have the providence of God that is working in all situations for your good. You have the intercession of the Spirit and you have the work of providence. And you for whom God is working all good, you're God's elect. He's still encouraging them when he comes to verses 31 to 39. And he tells the believers there that God cares for them. He points out that God is for us. God is for his people. He's on the side of his people. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Meaning who can be successfully against us? God is for us. God means our good. God works always in our favor. We may not understand it, we may not even believe it. That's what it says. God is for us in verse 31. Verse 32, God has given us his son and therefore will give us all things. In verse 33, God freely justifies us and then here we have another reference to the death of Christ where Paul poses a third question. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who is he who condemns? He, he's, he clarifies that no one can legally pronounce the believer guilty 
and worthy of eternal death. And why should no one be able to do that? Because it is Christ who died. It is because Christ died that there is now no possibility of condemnation. God did not merely wave away our sins. He settled them in Jesus Christ. He paid for them with his blood. He made a perfect and a final sacrifice for sins. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. It is the reason that we are able to say there is now no condemnation. Why? Because Christ died. Because Christ was condemned in our place. He bore the awful and the horrible sentence of death. He was struck. He was bruised. He was wounded. He was crushed for our sins. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And moreover, not only did Christ die, but Paul says that he is risen. He is risen and is at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. That Christ has been raised from the dead and has ascended into heaven. This is just marvelous. Where is he seated? Where is he placed? He's at the right hand of God at the place of all power and authority, at the place of decision-making, at the place where he's able to effect everything that he has purposed. He's at and in the seat of everlasting and eternal government. This is not somebody who's trying to influence things behind the scene, who's like a backseat driver trying to steer a bus. This is Christ who died and rose and is at the right hand of God. The right hand of God refers to his status of authority and power. And makes intercession. He's in heaven as our lawyer, there to represent us, to bring our matters before the Father. And why? Why is his intercession always successful? Is it, not, is it merely because he's the son of God? No. It is because he died. In other words, Christ is in heaven. And he intercedes, but he intercedes on the basis of his perfect life and his perfect obedience demonstrated in his death. He still in glory bears the mark and the scars of the cross. And these are the signs that plead for us. He stands with outstretched arms. And the wounds are still visible. And they speak. And they cry mercy. You see, for Paul, the death of Christ is not only the ultimate demonstration of the love of God. It is the believer's consolation and assurance that because Jesus paid you will not have to pay there's one more thing that Paul states that we do not always consider regarding the death of Christ 
Not only is the death of Christ our consolation and assurance, but Christ's death and resurrection establish his lordship over both the dead and the living. I want us to pursue this for a brief while in chapter 14 of Romans. We're just talking about Paul's view and impression of the significance of Christ's death in terms that are not often discussed in preaching regarding the cross and its significance. In Romans 14 verse 9, Paul says, For to this end Christ died and rose again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Chapter 14, as you know, falls within the practical section of the epistle of Romans, a section which begins in chapter 14, in chapter 12. In chapter 14, Paul takes up the matter of that tension which existed in the church in Rome between two groups of Christians, Christians whom he described as weak and strong. The weak Christians of which Paul speaks are those who apparently were Jewish in descent. They lacked the kind of confidence that would encourage them to set aside the Old Testament commandments with its rituals and laws. These weak Christians believed that they still needed to keep the dietary and the dietary prescriptions of the law about what not to eat, and so they would perhaps often not eat pork. These were Christians, these weak Christians, who believed that they had to celebrate the special days and ceremonies on the Jewish calendar. On the other hand, you had the strong Christians. These were mainly Gentiles in composition. And they would be called adherents to the Freedom Party. Because they, they did not place any significance on food. They are those who say, no, pork is sanctified by prayer and is to be received. They wouldn't have a problem eating pork. They would not pay any particular attention to Jewish feasts and festivities and special days. What was happening then was that these two groups were at odds. The weak Christians apparently were condemning them, condemning the strong, perhaps suggesting that they were libertines, perhaps even calling them antinomians. Whereas the strong despise the weak. And Paul tells these two groups that they ought not to be passing condemning judgment on one another, but that they ought to receive each other in a spirit of tolerance. He goes on in point out in verse 4 that both the weak and the strong belong to one master who is Christ. So that whether one observes a day or does not observe a day, or whether one eats or one refrains from eating, he or she does all things in relationship to Christ. Chapter 14, verse 6. The 
the Apostle Paul captures the principle that all things are done in relationship to Christ in verse 7 and 8. He says, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Paul is saying that all of life is lived for the Lord to whom we belong. That even in dying, we die to the Lord. That is, as we submit to his will in our life, even in death, that too is done for the praise and for the glory of God. And what Paul is saying is that we ought not then to judge one another because we belong to the Lord. And all that we are doing, whether we live or whether we die, that is an offering unto God. Paul underscores this point, that all life is lived for the Lord. And then he says this, Christ died and rose again that he might be the Lord of the living and the dead. Paul does not merely then view the death of Christ as a death to satisfy God for our sins. That is the operative thing, yes. He does not even view the death of Christ as merely a death to defeat Satan, though that is important. But he tells us that Christ also died to establish his lordship over all his people. Christ died and rose again that he might be the Lord of the living and the dead. He paid for our sins that he might indeed receive the highest station in heaven. Now it is not that he will receive a station that was not his before. Because he is the Lord of glory. He is the Lord of heaven and earth by creation. But having died, he will receive as a reward, as the God-man, lordship over all creation. Christ died that he might be Lord. That he might be seen and revered and proclaimed as Lord. He died to this end, to this goal, to this purpose. He rose to this end, to this purpose. And he lived again to this purpose, to this end. That he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. That he might assume his place as the king of the ages as the king of creation and the king of his church well let me summarize this for Paul the death of Christ is more than payment for sin it is that and centrally so but it is more it is the death of Christ the ultimate demonstration of God's amazing love, God's sacrificial love. It is the basis of our eternal consolation. And it is that which establishes along with his resurrection, his sovereign lordship over the universe and the church. He died and rose again that he might be the lord of the dead and of the living. Children sometimes question the depth of the appearance love. We know that. 
as adults, we were guilty of it, even though some of us would not be happy to remember. So a boy may ask his dad, he says, Dad, do you love me? And the dad of school says, of course I love you, son. And then the boy says to the dad, well, can you take me to McDonald's? <laughs> and he begins to interpret the strength of his father's love on the basis of whether he gets a McNugget. <laughs> it's amazing. Now, we as Christians would say, we wouldn't do anything so crass with God. We wouldn't try to get God to do something for us to show his love for us. But I would suggest to you that we do that often and sometimes without fully realizing it. We may, with different language, come to God and try to blackmail him emotionally. We may rail at God. How is it that I have prayed for so long? I've served the Lord for so long and yet he hasn't given me the things that I have desired. Or why has God, if he truly loved me, why has he sent me this trial? And what we are saying in effect, God, if you love me, give me the husband that I want. Lord, if you love me, give me the car or the home that I've been asking you for. Lord, if you love me, make sure that my life is free from problems. We're doing in a sense, of everything that that little boy does to his father. If you love me, give me McNuggets. We need to recognize, nevertheless, that the proof of God's love for us is not so much that providence always smiles, although we ought to be very careful of a frowning providence, for behind it is a smiling face. But the proof of God's love is not so much the working of providence in our lives. That which God has given as proof and demonstration of his love is that he gave his son. And there is no other thing in the world that can be compared to his gift of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And gave us his son as a propitiation for our sins. If you want to know how much God loves you. Do not look at your bank account. It is not, it is not I would say to you, the true reflection of divine love. That would mean that poor people are not loved by God. The true demonstration of God's love is at the cross. There, the heart of God is ripped open. There is nothing else to be compared to the cross because it is the signal statement that God, with a superior love, love wretches, sinners, ungodly people, rebels and enemies, so that Christ came and suffered and died. And there will be moments in your life when you will question God's love, for it is human. But my dear friends, you need to look at what God has done objectively in Christ. Not question God's love, merely based on the ups and downs of providence. But anchor your hope 
and your trust in his love by looking at that objective and profound work that Christ died. That Christ died. My dear friends, I want you to know that God's love for you can never ever be completely comprehended. You and I would never think of giving up a child for anyone else. We wouldn't stomach the idea. It certainly would not do. There would be no one greater in the universe or deserving of the life of a son. Apart from the fact that he would be moral, we could never stomach the idea. And yet God gave his only begotten son just for you. While you were still holding a fist against him, while you were still resisting him, while you were still going about your merry way, while you were still unconcerned about your eternal destiny, For you. Here is love. And we love him because he loved us. Jonathan Edwards tells us that heaven will be a world of love. A world of love. He tells us that because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 there are three things that remain faith, love, and hope. But that which outlasts them all is love. Heaven is a world of love. Because there God will sing over you and quieten you with his love. There the love of God poured out in your heart will be fully and perfectly grasped. World. Heaven will be a world of love. Know that the measure of God's love for you is not determined by providence but determined by his work on the cross. Draw your comfort and consolation from the cross. The Heidelberg Catechism in the first question asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And it answers that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully paid for all my sins. That's my comfort. That's my comfort. My comfort is not that I have pleased God, but that Christ has fully satisfied and paid for all my sins, for those in the past and for those today and for those that I will commit tomorrow, God forbid. My only comfort, my only assurance is that I have a Savior who paid in full. And when we stand at the throne of God, our only consolation will be that the judge is our savior who himself has bought us with his own blood. Amen. The only reason that you will escape hell it is because you had a savior, you have a savior who loved you so much that he died for you. And since as Christ died and rose again to be Lord, make it your duty to proclaim him your Lord. When the ten lepers were healed, the nine disappeared without a word of thanks. But one Samaritan returned, glorifying God, 
and cast himself at the feet of Jesus, giving thanks. May God help us that because Christ died and rose again to be Lord of the dead and the living, that we will cast ourselves at his feet and proclaim him in word and in deed to be our Lord, to serve him, to march at his command, and to do his bidding with joy, because the reason that he died and rose again is that he might be acclaimed to be King of kings and Lord of lords. Would you do that? To hold him, to grasp him, to take him as your king and your Lord because he died for you. May Jesus be gracious to you for his sake.